You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12s. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Happy Tuesday to all of our listeners. This episode is being brought to you by Built Bar, the delicious protein bar with less sugar and less calories. Get $10 off your first box by going to BuiltBar.com and using the code LOCKEDON. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. We're still more than two months away from the expected start of Seahawks training camp, but we now know when the team will be playing its preseason games as the schedule was officially confirmed today by the team. Now obviously, Rob, These games are going to have a tentative schedule. We don't even know if training camp is going to start on time given the coronavirus pandemic, but the league is continuing to do what it has done all along, and they are planning accordingly that the schedule is going to kick off when it's expected to, and things are going to start on time. Yeah, exactly. So the Seattle's first preseason game would be against the Las Vegas Raiders at CenturyLink Field on August 13th at 7 p.m. Now, Pete Carroll had talked about before that he wanted at least six weeks uh, to prepare the Seahawks to be able to play, um, you know, in in a regular season game. So that kind of ties in with that schedule. And so I I think that this it gives Seahawks fans and NFL fans a a tentative date to look forward to as far as when the preseason opener would be for Seattle Um, and that writes that in itself is exciting news. Yeah, that first game, as you mentioned, Thursday, August 13th, based on NFL rules, teams are allowed to start training camp 15 days before that first preseason game. So that puts the Seahawks at a July 29th start time. And that's obviously if stay-at-home restrictions are pulled back a little bit and they are given permission to host training camp. We don't know if that's going to happen yet. There have been some positive developments the past few days out of California. That was the one that really surprised me, saying pro sports might be starting up the first week or two of June, potentially. That seems like a major backpedal compared to what we had heard from Governor Gavin Newsom earlier. But Texas also in the mix, Florida, Arizona, a lot of states right now starting to pull the curtain back a little bit so pro sports can return. Washington is yet to do that. Maybe at the end of this month, we get into June, Jay Inslee will be willing to do that as well, and we'll start to see professional sports work back into the fold. Looking at the rest of Seattle's preseason schedule, they will travel to face the Texans for their second preseason game on Saturday, August 22nd, and then they'll wrap up with a couple Thursday games at home against the Chargers on August 27th, and then the Vikings on the road September 3rd. You can expect that's going to be all backups in that final game against the Vikings in Minnesota. And I guess my closing comment here, we we don't know when these games are going to happen, if they're going to happen on time, if there's only going to be a couple preseason games, are we going to get in all four? Everything is full of uncertainty. This year is going to be a bit different in terms of being a litmus test for how teams are going to handle this because we know they haven't had OTAs or mini camps to this point except for virtual ones online. No on-field work. It seems unlikely we're going to get either of those at any point aside from virtual programs, even with some of the good news coming out of these states here in the last few days and we're starting to see some facilities start to slowly reopen And that makes me wonder, are we going to see starters play more potentially in preseason games? Are they going to be out there less because you haven't gotten a chance to see these bottom of the roster guys near as much as you normally would at this point? 
How much time do they really have to get ready for regular season games? As you mentioned, Pete Carroll pointing out that ideally they're going to have six weeks before the regular season opener to get everybody ready to go. And that's complicated by the matters that we're dealing with right now with this virus. It certainly is. And that's the thing is you want to have enough time to be able to uh, at, at least reasonably evaluate the the rookies and the veterans that you've brought into the into the roster. But at the same time, obviously, you have to be ready to rock in September and in, in when the regular season begins. So to me, one of the fascinating things about this, Corbin, is we've known that for, for so long, that third preseason game has kind of been the one where you you play your stars until halftime and maybe even into the third quarter. I, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how this changes. Obviously, everything is, is, is up in the air. We may end up, wind up having one, of the, one or more preseason games uh, wind up being canceled. But assuming that the schedule goes as it says right now, you, you mentioned the fact that, that Seattle's uh, third and fourth preseason games are on Thursdays. And I think that that's interesting because their second game is on a Saturday. So there's, basically, there's a five-day difference between the preseason second game at Houston and the preseason third game at home against the Los Angeles Chargers. So just because of that, because of that short turnaround, I think that it makes a little bit more sense for Seattle to try to play their starters more in that that fourth preseason game, which right now is scheduled for Thursday, September 3rd at Minnesota. A quality opponent, as well as a, a very much a litmus test, as you used that expression before, a litmus test to allow Seattle to kind of prepare themselves for the regular season which starts just a week later if we think training camps and preseason are important for rookies it's going to be on another level this year and so I mean just look at LJ Collier not getting to play in any of the preseason games last year because of that ankle injury and how much that set him back these games are going to be critical not just for those young guys but even more so than normal for the veterans just because we haven't gotten the on-field work and and that's assuming that they don't get on the field at all before training camp maybe that changes here in the next few weeks and some of these teams start to think maybe there's a chance we can get a little bit of work on the field in late June. I can't rule that out. At this point, everything is on the table with the way things are going right now. We just don't know. But nonetheless, fans can at least look forward to being able to watch these games on TV. I would be stunned if there are any fans in preseason games. I would think they're just going to be big scrimmages inside these stadiums. Maybe in the regular season we can start to get some fans out there. But nonetheless, it's something for them to be excited about and look forward to. 86 days now until the Seahawks will open their preseason at home against the Las Vegas Raiders. When we come back for the second quarter, it's officially What If Week here on Locked On Seahawks. We're going to go back more than 40 years to the early stages of the Seahawks franchise and revisit the 1977 NFL Draft. Don't go away. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As an avid weightlifter and distance runner, I'm always looking for an edge when it comes to nutrition, seeking quality tasting protein bars without crazy additives. Since being diagnosed with celiac disease, my options have been pretty limited. Enter in the Built Bar, a low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, gluten-free protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Built Bar comes in 16 amazing flavors. My personal favorite is the peanut butter brownie, which is 20 grams of protein and just 3 grams of sugar and 3 grams of net carbs. Since I had my first one, I won't go without it before hitting my squat rack or going for a jog. All Built Bars are 100% chocolate, nut and gluten free, 
soft and easy to chew, and don't have the nasty aftertaste associated with most protein bars. Sound too good to be true? Go to BuiltBar.com and check out all their flavor options. You can build your own custom box and new flavors will be coming out May 10th. Try this delicious product for yourself and change your exercise game by using promo code LOCKEDON and get $10 off your first box at BuiltBar.com. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, along with Rob Rang. Seattle has had six different running backs over the years run for at least 1,000 yards in a season. Sean Alexander did it five straight years. Ricky Waters, at the end of his career, did it three times for the Seahawks. Chris Warren did it three times. Kurt Warner had four seasons of 1,000-plus yards. Marshawn Lynch did it four straight years. And now we've got Chris Carson to add as one that has done it twice the last two years for the Seahawks. There is a storied history of backfield talents for this franchise, but it's really funny looking back to when everything got started in 1976 as an expansion franchise. The Seahawks had the worst rushing attack in the entire league, 28th overall in that 1976 inaugural season, which they went 2-12, and the second worst record in the entire league. Yeah, exactly. And so that to me is one of the fascinating things about this is because the Seahawks did start off as poorly as they did in that 1976 season, which you say that it's not surprising that a friend or that a, you know, a team jumping into the NFL, it's very, it's debut season is going to struggle. But at the same time, you got to give the Seahawks and uh, John Thompson was the general manager. Jack Patera was the head coach. You got to give them a great, a great deal of credit, uh, you know, between, between um, the the quarterback in, in Jim Zorn and between Seattle's very first selection, Steve Niehaus, uh, the defensive tackle in that 1976 draft class, Seattle had the reigning offensive and defensive rookies of the year, and yet they still had only two wins. Um, and, and so there was young talent on this team, and it put Seattle in a very interesting position. Number two overall selection in the 1977 draft with the Heisman Trophy winner Tony Dorsett available to them this draft was all about running backs this was not a great draft class to begin with if you go back and look at that 77 class it wasn't the worst I've ever seen but there wasn't a ton of star power in that class but you had a couple of running backs headlining it's a different era for those that are saying running backs don't matter 1977 they definitely mattered and you had Ricky Bell out of USC and then you had Tony Dorsett the Heisman Trophy winner out of Pittsburgh Those were considered the top two prospects in this draft class. They were both running backs. And the only team that was ahead of Seattle was Tampa Bay, the other expansion franchise from that 1976 season. They didn't win a single game in their first year. So for Seahawks fans that think they got it bad, just look at the other expansion team in that case. Buccaneers had it really rough going that first season. They decided to pick Ricky Bell, and that left Dorsett as the best player remaining on the board over 2,100 rushing yards in his last year with the Panthers, a true home run threat. Seattle did draft running back Sherman Smith the year before in the second round, so it's not like they had invested a high pick in a running back already with their franchise, but no offense to Sherman Smith, as good of a player as he was. He was not the talent that Dorsett was. So Thompson and the Seahawks were closely looking at Dorsett as an option at pick number two. There was only one problem. Dorsett had no interest playing for the Seattle Seahawks. 
Exactly. And, and that's the thing is that you can play this revisionist history. And I, and I love that we're playing the what if game here because, you know, it, it's fascinating. I mean, Tony Dorsett, I mean, this is one of the NFL's all time great, you know, all time great players. If you put him next to Jim Zorn, next to Steve Largent, then how different is Seattle's early franchise history when you have a Hall of Famer like Tony Dorsett, who ran eight different seasons? He, he eclipsed that 1,000 yard rushing mark with the Dallas Cowboys later in his career. But at the same time, I'm, I'm happy that you mentioned Sherman Smith, Corbin, because he was Seattle's second-round pick the year before. And as you said, this was a different era. This was the, the, the you know the the kind of the, the run the ball. Every single team had that same kind of mentality era. And Sherman Smith was nicknamed the Sherman Tank for a reason. He was six four, two hundred twenty five pounds. I mean, this was a guy that would take your soul. And, and so he was very much in the Jack Patera type of uh, of run the ball down teams' throats. And, and Tony Dorsett, on the other hand, was five eleven, one hundred ninety five pounds. I mean, and so there was some. Questions Questions about whether or not that he would fit in, but what a remarkable talent! And so it, again, it, it's a fun conversation. It, certainly, Tony Dorsett would have been successful in Seattle, obviously because he wound up being as successful as he was in Dallas. Just a remarkable talent. But at the same time, considering the, the fact that the Seattle had the, the you know so many problems they had in their debut season, had already invested a big time pick in Sherman Smith. I think that ultimately Seattle actually made a pretty savvy decision in trading down and trying to build up the roster. They gave up 429 points on defense in that inaugural season. They had one of the worst defenses imaginable that first year. And so they had holes across the board. That offensive line was in shambles too. They were just trying to piece together a competent front line. And so Thompson and the Seahawks get close to the draft, and it's evident that Dorsett does not want to play in Seattle. He's made a threat. I will go to the CFL if the Seahawks draft me. So Seattle was in a position where they didn't want to risk that and draft him and not be able to change his mind. They just had too many holes in their roster to be able to take that chance. So they were fielding offers, and of course the Dallas Cowboys come in with Gil Brandt as one of their top advisors running the show there, building that 70s dynasty in Dallas, and Brandt offers up their first round pick and three second round selections to move up, and all this is hindering on Dorsett still being available. There's talk Tampa Bay might take Dorsett with the first pick, so the trade's not official until he's available. Bell's picked first, so Dorsett is on the board there at number two. They pull off this trade, and this is one of those where I think both teams won. Now, whether you want to say Dorsett going to the Cowboys was a bigger win because he had a Hall of Fame career, then absolutely you can make that argument. But, Rob, this front line for Seattle added three foundational pieces, and unfortunately injuries hurt several of these guys shorten their careers, but they still had very good careers, and they got the Seahawks moving towards becoming a contender in the AFC. They got Steve August in the first round with the pick they got from the Cowboys. They brought in Tom Lynch in the second round. In the fourth round, they drafted John Yarno. All three of those guys played key roles for the Seahawks for several seasons of the offensive line, and they finally got a winning record in 1978. So it's not like it took them that long to become relevant in the AFC. You can wonder if Dorsett helped them ascend quicker, but who is he going to run behind if you don't amass those extra picks to get offensive linemen either? 
Oh, exactly. And that's the thing is that, you know, in Seattle's initial season, they won two games and the next year they won five. The next year they won nine. So, again, obviously, if you are going to be able to add a, a, a future Hall of Famer, uh, somebody who as a Heisman Trophy winner would have deflected so much more national attention to Seattle, if you're able to convince Tony Dorsett to play in Seattle, then sure then that makes a lot of sense. But Jack Thompson, as you mentioned before, was put in a very uh, enviable situation, basically. And we've seen situations like this that have happened in the the 80s, the 90s. But for this to happen in, in 1977, for a player to have the audacity to tell a franchise, no, I don't want to go there. I will go play somewhere else, was basically unheard of. And so for Seattle to acquire the draft picks that they did to be able to build their franchise into a respectable born in the NFL in my opinion kudos to Jack Thompson kudos to Jack or excuse me to John Thompson and to Jack Patera for helping put the Seahawks on the National Football League map looking at the reality of the situation everybody will always look back and wonder what if Tony Dorsett played for the Seahawks but you can look at his career and then you can look at what the Seahawks ended up doing Dorsett rushed for over 12,000 yards in an eventual Hall of Fame career he won a Super Bowl for the Cowboys as a rookie, and he only started four games that year, but he still rushed for over a thousand yards, a major impact player from day one. The Seahawks had Sherman Smith for several years, and then finally, 1983, they draft Kurt Warner to give them a dynamic running back, and he immediately pays dividends as a pro bowler, well over a thousand yards, one of the NFL's best rushers immediately as a rookie. Some may wonder, well, Dorsett still would have been in the prime of his career at that point. Maybe they could have drafted somebody like Dan Marino or Jim Kelly, one of those top quarterbacks in that draft class. But the way things worked out, Seattle was able to get to the playoffs in 1983, and a big part of it was getting Kurt Warner out of Penn State. So I think in the end, this ended up playing out okay for the Seattle Seahawks. They were able to amass draft picks, and it's not like this player was going to play for them anyway. I'm thoroughly convinced that they would have picked him, he would have forced him his way out, or he would have done what he said he was going to do and go play elsewhere. Money then didn't talk as much as what it does now. <laughs> That's true. You know, it, it, you know, in Seattle, I mean, obviously, the fact that the, the Seahawks under Pete Carroll have won a Super Bowl, now it is a, a place where a lot of veterans, a lot of rookies are, are very interested in playing. But in 1977, you know, Seattle w- was essentially a whole different country in, in the minds of a, of a lot of players. A certain, certainly a player like, like Tony Dorsett, who, who played his college ball at the University of Pittsburgh, obviously on the whole other side of the country. You know, came in as, as a Heisman Trophy winner uh, with as much celebrity as, as anybody possibly could. The idea of going to to tiny little Seattle, I, I'm sure, had him had him very concerned, and, and therefore, uh, you know, his decision not to want to play for the Seahawks. So again, I, I think that the Seahawks deserve a great deal of credit for for you know basically taking lemons and turning it into lemonade in this situation. It's not like now. I think if you had a situation like this and the Seahawks somehow had a top 10 pick and they were able to go after a top player, I don't think any players now are going to be saying, ew, I don't want to play in Seattle. But it's much different now than what it was back in 1977 with a new franchise that didn't have much talent, especially at the offensive line. If you're running back, that's not the most ideal position to put yourself in. And he ended up using that leverage to 
They get traded to the Dallas Cowboys and became one of the icons for the Cowboys in the 70s and 80s. When we come back in the third quarter, we're going to revisit the backup quarterback situation in Seattle. They re-signed Geno Smith last week, and we know Anthony Gordon's going to be in town as well. We're going to look at both those players and see what edge each player may have going into the 2020 season to win that backup job behind Russell Wilson. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back. Glad to have you joining us here on the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, along with Rob Rang. Throughout the rest of this offseason, we're going to continually take looks at each positional group, especially this year. There's going to be some roster changes that come at different times than normal. There are a lot of good free agents still out in the market because of the coronavirus, so I would anticipate Seattle is going to add some more players at some point, and that happened last week. They did bring back quarterback Geno Smith. There had been some speculation about a bigger name quarterback maybe being a target for the Seahawks, as you and I discussed, Rob, but they ended up going with Geno Smith, bringing back the veteran that was the backup for Russell Wilson last season. And now you're going to have the veteran, the former second-round pick out of West Virginia, going up against undrafted rookie Anthony Gordon. Whenever they get back on the field, that's going to be a very interesting battle between an experienced quarterback that started a lot of games in the NFL and a player that had a huge senior season at Washington State but has never taken an NFL snap. Yeah, exactly. And it's not just the experience in <clears throat> in terms of the NFL that, that Geno Smith has that advantage over Anthony Gordon. Um, it, it's just the fact that, that, that Geno Smith, even at West Virginia, was a multi-year starter, whereas Anthony Gordon at Washington State, of course, is a junior college transfer, um, lost out uh, closely, I should mention, to, to Gardner Minshew. Um, you know, in, in the 2018 season, of course, Gardner Minshew wound, wound up having one of the great years in, in Washington State history and uh, his success in the NFL himself for the Jacksonville Jaguars is, you know, it's got a lot of attention, but, but Anthony Gordon came in and and was spectacular for the Cougars a year ago. And and so that's one of the reasons why you're really excited about uh, him, his joining the, the Seahawks. But, I think that in terms of experience, obviously, Geno Smith has that. I, I think I applaud the Seahawks because I think that this is a guy that, uh, you know, developed some rapport with Russell Wilson, has the eye as a, as a former starter to be able to actually help help Russell Wilson uh, just by providing some perspective from the sideline. I think that's absolutely critical in today's NFL to have those the, those backup quarterbacks, especially other positions also, but especially the quarterback position to to be able to have another set of eyes, to be able to have those conversations. We've all watched games, Corbin, where where you see the backup quarterbacks kind of huddle up with the starters on the sideline and, and, and looking at their notebooks or whatever the case might be, watching film. Geno Smith, because of his starting experience in college and the NFL, provides that. Very excited about Anthony Gordon as well. And this is just an interesting dynamic when, when we're talking about this position in particular, the backup quarterback role. It's a spot that you're hoping you never have to have that guy on the field if it's not the preseason. But at the same time, you want to make sure that you have somebody that if your quarterback goes down, you're never going to have a backup on your roster that's going to give you just as good of a chance to win games. That just doesn't happen. I mean, Cam Newton would be something close if the Seahawks would have went out and got him. But Geno Smith is about as good as you're going to get in a backup quarterback. He's a guy that has started a bunch of games for the Jets, even got a couple spot starts for the Giants a few years back. So he has played a lot of snaps in this league. And this would be the first time that I'm shocked that I'm saying this. I mean, we've known this, but 
it's still shocking to say this. They have not had the same backup quarterback for two straight seasons since Tavares Jackson was still the guy in 2015. And so they've just been playing musical chairs there. Trayvon Boykin, they were so excited about, then he couldn't stay out of trouble off the field, so he gets released. He was the backup for one season. He's the last quarterback other than Russell Wilson that's thrown a pass in a game. And then the next year, you've got Austin Davis as your backup. Then they go to Brett Hundley, who they traded for with the Packers, one-year deal. Then he's in Arizona, actually beat the Seahawks last year at CenturyLink Field. And then obviously last season, they bring in Geno Smith. So this will be the first time they have the same backup for two straight seasons. And that's obviously an advantage both for the player and the team. And he just fits their scheme well. He's not the same athlete as Russell Wilson, but certainly a guy that can run the football some, can move outside of the pocket. You can do rollouts with him. You can run some zone fakes. So you really don't have to adjust the playbook that much. On the flip side, you could make an argument as far as being a pure passer at this point that Gordon might be coming into the league with a bit more touch than what Geno Smith brings to the table. He might. Uh, And that's the thing is that with Gordon, of course, playing and and Mike Leach in in Washington State's version of the air raid offense and and previously going way, way back to Geno Smith of West Virginia um, and and with Dana Holgerson, who, of course, was an assistant coach previously under Mike Leach, then it, it. you know, it, to me, one of the fascinating things, we, Corbin, we've talked about this before. We think that there's a possibility that Seattle is kind of slowly gearing a little bit more towards letting Russell Wilson eat, if I was to use the the, the Seahawks Twitter expression, and, and letting Russell Wilson really attack uh, defenses. So to me, one of the fascinating things about this is that you have two backup quarterbacks in Geno Smith and in, in Anthony Gordon who both have that air pass happy kind of experience and so they they're both athletic enough to be able to to provide you some type of of dual threat uh presence obviously the way that russell wilson gives the seahawks but but at the same time they have a much more of a of a pass happy kind of uh of background than russell wilson had at north carolina state and, and at wisconsin so i i think that the the, the, the duo of gordon and geno smith is absolutely fascinating for the Seahawks. I'm I'm really curious to kind of see how this winds up working itself out in our abbreviated training camp before the preseason. It's going to be especially tough. We've talked about this a bunch up to this point. It's going to be really hard for undrafted rookies to make any rosters in the NFL this year without OTAs, without mini camps. You know, you can learn the playbook the best you can right now through virtual meetings, but no on-field work, especially at the quarterback position, it's going to be an uphill climb for Anthony Gordon. I think in an ideal in an ideal situation for Seattle right now, you are able to bring back Geno Smith. That seemed somewhat inevitable for most of this offseason. At some point, they will bring him back. He's not going to be too expensive to re-sign. They're not going to break the bank on a backup quarterback. But you're going to bring him back. He's going to be the guy behind Russell Wilson just like he was last year. He's going to play well in the preseason. And Anthony Gordon is going to show enough that you can hopefully stash him on your practice squad. If he plays too well, it might be hard for them to do that. Somebody else might pluck him off waivers if he's not going to be on your roster. And I think one last thing to throw in here, with the new CBA, and we have never really talked about this with backup quarterbacks in Seattle because Russell Wilson's been an Iron Man, and there's been no reason to keep three quarterbacks on the roster, but rosters are going to expand to 55 players this year. 
I could see if Anthony Gordon plays really well in the preseason or just at least well enough that the Seahawks maybe view him as the backup of the future, that instead of trying to sneak him onto the practice squad, he could actually take one of those last two roster spots. I could see a situation where all three of those quarterbacks, at least for the first week, are on the roster. Sometimes you can keep a guy on the roster for a week, and then you can cut him, and then you have an easier time getting him to the practice squad. So maybe they could pull that trick with Anthony Gordon as well. There are some different dynamics this year that, even without the virus wreaking havoc, would have allowed Seattle potentially to be able to keep all three of those guys around. And that really is something that I'm intrigued to see how it plays out, not just in Seattle, but around the league with those two extra spots. Exactly. I, exactly. Around the rest of the league is, is I think, is a, is a beautiful way of putting it, Corbin, because you're absolutely right. Every single team is going to be looking to how they can best take advantage of those two extra roster spots. Obviously, just given the, the value of the quarterback position in the NFL, a lot of teams are going to use one or perhaps even two of those extra roster spots to be able to stow away some of those quarterbacks and not be able uh, or not allow other teams to be able to take them. We talked a little bit about Jacob Eason from University of Washington, Indianapolis Colts. They have four quarterbacks who I think are are all going to be uh, you know, somebody that the NFL teams would be intrigued by. So they might be an example of that exact phenomenon. For, for the Seahawks in particular, to me, one of the most interesting things, we, we talked a lot about how they have so many tight ends. They have so many linebackers. They have so many guards. Think about how many times those two positions hit each other in a training camp, in a preseason, before the season actually begins. So I think that, for at least for my money right now, I would say those are the positions Seattle is most likely to try and sneak an extra player with this expanded roster space. But you make an excellent point, Corbin. I think that a lot of teams around the NFL, perhaps the Seahawks, are going to use one of those extra spots on a third quarterback. Yep, as I said, I would think the ideal perfect circumstance for Seattle would be able to sneak Anthony Gordon onto the practice squad right away. It's just kind of one of those fine lines. You want him to look good on the field in the preseason, but not too good. Because if he looks too good out there, there are a lot of teams that could use a solid second quarterback. And so if he plays well in the preseason, he's a guy that a lot of people were surprised didn't get drafted. I could see another team that has weaker depth at quarterback taking a chance at putting him on their roster, especially in a year like this where none of the other young quarterbacks are going to have the advantage of off-season workouts either. We could see some really weird things going on in training camp. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a fun battle between those two, the veteran versus the undrafted rookie. Both of them have plenty of skills throwing the football. Again, Russell Wilson's the guy. You hope you don't see either one of them on the field in a regular season game, but you want to put the best backup behind him that you can, and that should be a fun competition between those two players. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. If you'd like to be a featured sponsor on our podcast, you can contact us, LockSeahawks at gmail.com. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever your preferred podcast platform is by going to our website, LockedOnSeahawks.com. Coming up on our Wednesday show, we are going to be looking at another what if. This time, it's a little more recent. A quarterback that maybe could have completely written Seahawks history in the past decade and much more. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Go Hawks!